0: Well, one of the things I I love about our church is that we have lots of preachers in our church, and and that I can leave for a month, and and y'all are just fine. Um, I know pastors that can never take Sundays off, they feel like, because they have no one else who can preach when they're gone, and it's just wonderful that we have multiple people in our church who love to preach and are gifted in that way and also are just seeking to continue to lean into that um, and continue to grow in that, and so... Um, one of my, my good friends, Dustin, he's preached here before. You've seen his face a lot around here. Um, he's going to be sharing a word with us today. And So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes up. Come on up. And I, I don't know what he's going to preach, and I'm excited to hear it this morning. And so uh, um, let me just say a, a brief prayer of, of, over him as he comes to share the word. God, we uh, just come before you this morning, and I thank you for Dustin and what you've laid on his heart today. I pray, Lord, that uh, what He shares with us would be um, just built uh, out of a partnership between Him and you, as He's wrestled with this text and wrestled with your Word, and and also wrestled with this time and moment that we are in right now, as as humanity living in this world. And, and I pray, God, that that God, your Word would shine through as He shares, and that we could it would be evident, Lord, that your Spirit is working and moving in Him and in us as we come together. Uh, for this common purpose, to grow and become more like Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Nice shirt, John. Looks good. We didn't plan that, I promise. It's not the first time that's happened. Uh, Well, yeah, I'm really excited to share some things I've been meditating on uh, lately. You know, while John was on a much-deserved sabbatical, we got to hear from Pastor Rick, and then Pastor Caleb, and then Pastor Tanya, and then Pastor Christina, and now you get to hear from me. And I'm not a pastor. Uh, I'm just someone who really loves the Bible and loves the church and loves to dwell on these things. Um, My wife and I have been coming here since 2016. Um, We've got two little boys, Beckett and Wendell, who's in the nursery. Um, And so we just, we love being here. We love being a part of this community. Um, And so I'm especially excited to get to share with my church family today a little bit. Um, So we finished up our Roman series back in July um, as we were sort of loosely following the lectionary and so the lectionary since that time has put us right back in the middle of Matthew. I don't know if folks remember at the beginning of the year we kind of went through the the early parts of Matthew and so now we've sort of picked up back in the middle. We started with Jesus using parables to tell us about the kingdom of heaven and how our role in it is to love and not judge and then we learned about the abundant blessing that Jesus offered through his disciples when he fed the 5,000 After that, we learned about trusting in Jesus when Peter walked out onto a lake toward Jesus, learning that we're invited to do the same thing even in the midst of our doubt. And then last week, we heard about a blunt exchange between Jesus and a Canaanite woman whose faith was even greater than Jesus' disciples. So slowly but surely, Matthew is taking us through Jesus' time up north, showing us a little bit of a time, more, more about who Jesus is. And today, we're going to finish Jesus' journey heading northward in chapter 16. And that's because this passage is set in the northmost city that he and his disciples are going to visit before finally turning south and beginning their journey toward Jerusalem, the cross, and the resurrection. This is sort of the literal and figurative turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, his big reveal of who Jesus really is and what it means to follow him. Up to this point, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man, and others have had plenty of different labels for him. We'll hear a few of those here in a little bit. But none of them have been as important as what Peter claims in this passage for us today. So let's go ahead and read together about this, uh, this big reveal. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to him, but who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. So this passage may sound familiar to a lot of us. It's been picked over a lot through church history, and there's really good reason for that. It's a really remarkable moment where Peter proclaims for the first time in the book, and really the first time in the New Testament, that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for, the one predicted all the way back in the Garden of Eden, and again in the Psalms, and again in the Prophets. And if any of you were raised Catholic, you've also probably heard this passage used as a way of defending the role of the Pope in the church. Now, as a good Methodist, I'm not here to tell you that the Pope is the head of the church because of Matthew 16. He's great and all. I like the Pope, but I think this passage is actually doing something much deeper and richer and life-giving. I think at its essence, Peter and Jesus' conversation is one of the clearest revelations of the gospel message in the New Testament. And by that I mean, I think Matthew is sharing with us in this part of his narrative that Jesus, the Anointed One, is heaven on earth. He has come to bring about new creation and defeat death in all its forms, And He has empowered us, his assembly, to partner with him in that work. All right, that's it. That's my sermon. Let's have communion. It's been great. All right, yeah. Just kidding. I'm a nerd. You all know I'm not going to stop there. There's so much to unpack here, but I really do think that that's the gospel in a nutshell. And isn't it such good news? Amen? All right, so let's dive into this. I think it's always good to start with some context. So let's set the scene a little bit. Matthew tells us that Jesus has taken his disciples north to Caesarea Philippi in what's considered the fourth out of five narratives in Matthew. So we're really getting close to this final showdown in Jerusalem. Now Caesarea Philippi uh, is where they pause, and it's really interesting because it wasn't always called Caesarea Philippi. It it used to be called um, Paneus, and that's because it was named after the Greek god Pan, who was this like half-goat, half-man guy in, in Greek mythology. Um, in fact, there was a temple there dedicated to the worship of Pan. You'll see it sort of almost all the way over there. And um, near the temple of Pan was a uh, temple made to Augustus I'll talk about in a minute. But there's a cave there, uh, and in that cave there was this bottomless pit. I don't know if folks have been to Mammoth Cave, and you've seen the bottomless pit there. It's really similar. Um, and that pit was called the, the the Gate to Hades, which sounds familiar. It's in our passage, right? The common belief for Gentiles and Jews alike at the time was that Hades was the realm of the dead, especially, um, well, really just anyone. It was sort of under the ground in a pit, literally where people end up as they die. And just before Jesus was born, however, uh, the city was Romanized by Herod the Great and later given to Herod's son, Philip, to govern. So like despots often do, Philip named it after himself, and he also named it after the Roman emperor at the time, so Caesarea. Philippi. And this was really supposed to be a gesture toward Rome so that there was this view of unity between the puppet ruler of the area and the emperor at the time. Later, likely just before Matthew wrote his account of Jesus, the Roman generals Vespasian and Titus used this very city as their base of operations and rest during their campaign in 69 and 70 AD to put down the rebellion in Jerusalem, which is when they tore down the city and tore down the temple. Um, quick fun fact, apropos of nothing else in my sermon, I just think it's interesting. The upper tomb and the lower tomb there, um, the, that's the temple, that, that's one name for it. Another name I've seen for that is the Dancing Floor of the Sacred Goats. I don't know what that's about, but I think it's really interesting. Uh, okay, so to sum up, Caesarea Philippi is a pagan city, home to the gates of Hades, renovated by a brutal king, And used for violent and imperial purposes by Caesar. On all accounts, this was enemy territory where Jesus decided to stop with his disciples. And it's here, as far away from Jerusalem as Matthew is going to literally and figuratively get, that Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now there's a lot we could go into about Jesus shifting from being called the Son of Man to the Son of God. And if you're interested, please dive into that, but I really want to focus on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. So contrary to popular belief, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ, or Christos in the Greek, is actually just the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. In fact, uh, our, our passage today, even though the original Greek is Christos, they just skip straight to Messiah in this translation. And you'll see that in some others as well. What's interesting, though, is that Messiah itself actually holds its own meaning, which is anointed one, so Christos, means Messiah, means anointed one. So when you hear or read Peter say, you are the Christ, imagine Peter instead declaring, Jesus, you are the anointed one. And anointing has a long and rich history throughout the New and especially the Old Testament. Um, If Pastor Tanya was here, I was going to say, have you heard the latest series in the Bible Project? Because they just did a really good um, uh, run on anointing. So if you've heard that, you'll know where I'm headed. Anointing was this practice that was used to identify someone or something as holy, a sort of bridge between, God, between God's realm and the realm of the world, the heavens and earth. Anointing involved pouring or smearing a special concoction that you can actually look up in Exodus 30. It was a recipe of olive oil mixed with wood resin, cinnamon, fragrant cane, and a special kind of pine bark. It smelled really good. It was, it was really rich, representing a super condensed form of life, That was meant to point back to life at its best in the Garden of Eden when heaven and earth were completely overlapped. I mean, I I imagine that ancient Israel uh, was kind of a smelly place. There was a lot of animals. There was not a lot of bathing going on. So when someone or something was smeared with this really beautiful, fragrant oil, I can just imagine walking past that person and knowing that something is different about them, even before you talk to them, or knowing that something was different about this place before you You met them. When people and places were anointed with this oil, what it meant was to remind everyone that this was an embodiment of God's good, life giving presence on earth. Like I said, there's plenty of examples of the practice of anointing. You could say, even maybe, making little messiahs throughout Scripture. Jacob anointed the rock that he slept on in Bethel when he saw the ladder of angels ascending to heaven. Priests like Aaron were anointed to mediate between the people on earth and God. The tabernacle that Moses built was anointed with this special oils, and you walked into it, you could just smell it everywhere. Kings like Saul and David were anointed to lead the people of Israel justly, and even prophets were anointed to speak heaven's words to mankind. They were little bridges spanning the gap between heaven and earth and seeds of God's goodness to grow again in the world. While there were many lowercase m messiahs, you might say, throughout the Old Testament, there was also a consistent through line, an expectation that there would one day be a capital M messiah, the messiah. Passage after passage anticipated someone who would come and set all things right again, not simply become a bridge between God's realm and ours, but a perfect unification of the two. This began. Again, right at the moment when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, God promised that someday he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent. And similar expectations were repeated over and over again in Exodus and the Psalms and Daniel and Isaiah and in so many other hopeful moments of Scripture. So while many people were anointed to help bring things back to unity between heaven and earth, no one was heaven on earth until Jesus I mean, we call Jesus Emmanuel, right? Does anyone remember what Emmanuel means? Hey, everybody knows it. Yeah, excellent, good. God with us. For the early readers of Matthew, this revelation would have been such a triumphant moment. This whole time, Jesus has been walking along, planting seeds of heaven everywhere, healing people, speaking out against oppressive powers on behalf of the powerless, spreading new and liberating teaching about the kingdom of God feeding people. And this whole time, people are asking, who is this guy? In today's passage, we even see Jesus wondering about this. What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am, he asks. And the disciples answer his question by naming a lot of people from the past who were themselves anointed, little, little messiahs like Jeremiah and John the Baptist. So the people were definitely on to something. But then Jesus turns the question on his closest followers. But who do y'all say that I am? And this is the turning point of the whole story, the big reveal that we've been waiting 15 chapters for. Jesus, it turns out, is the anointed one, the son of the living God. It's in this moment that all of that long history of anointing, those ideas of richness and life, Eden and heaven, would have rushed over those listening to this part of the story. And it was and is a breathtaking revelation. Jesus is clearly relieved that Peter got this right. He said, blessed are you, Peter, because nobody else told you this, which is obvious because they thought Jesus was Ezekiel or something, right? But my Father, the living God who is in heaven, revealed this to you. Now you know the truth, Peter. I'm anointed to restore things the way they're supposed to be. I am anointed to bring life and fullness to everyone. I am anointed to begin remaking creation itself. And guess what, Peter? Now I'm anointing you to do that with me. So the next verse I want to spend a little bit of time on together uh, is one that I, I want to do because I think for a long time I got it wrong. Jesus tells Peter, which means the rock, that on this rock I'm going to build my church. Um, the Greek word for that really means like my assembly, and it had sort of military or civic connotation. So think about like a, a, a gathering, an assembly. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I was growing up, this passage was often described um, uh, or used to describe the dangers of the world and the devil. I often heard pastors cite the verse and, and then say something like, you know, the forces of hell are coming for you, but if you're on solid rock and if you're really careful and if you have enough faith, you might actually be able to withstand that. The image they conveyed to me was of a church that was constantly besieged by the world and that we needed to defend ourselves. But if you read the verse, I think that's actually the complete opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus tells Peter it's the gates of Hades that don't stand a chance against him and his assembly, not the other way around. It's the realm of death that the anointed one will invade and he's bringing his assembly along with him. The church, the assembly of the anointed one is on the move. Heaven's empire is expanding And like we learned last month from Romans 8, not even death can escape the love of God. Quick side note, in case this imagery feels uh, violent or militaristic to you, it is supposed to elicit those kinds of images. You are supposed to think about the uh, the relentless love moving on the, the broken parts of the world. But the method of this assault involves bearing, not building crosses. And that kind of revelation is going to rock Peter's world later in chapter 16. But that's next week's passage. Feel free to skip ahead if you want to. But this idea, this idea of breaking down the gates of Hades is so powerful and interesting to me. And it raises so many questions. A big one for me is, why would the realm of death even need to have gates in the first place? Gates are typically used to keep people out, not keep people in. So who would want to be stuck in there anyway? Well, I think a good place to start in answering that question, and a lot of questions, is uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who once said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. He wrote a whole book kind of exploring this idea called The Great Divorce. And Lewis would tell us that it's not that God is keeping us out of his presence. It's that when we as humanity pursue the things that lead to death, we are attempting to lock God out. The gates are locked from the inside. So when Jesus tells us that he and his assembly are coming to break down death's defenses, he meant that he was coming to rescue us from our greatest enemy, which is death. In fact, he meant it so much that when he eventually got to Jerusalem, he literally entered into death through the cross and then defeated it from the inside three days later. Jesus, the anointed one, the son of the living God, went ahead of us into death, broke down its gates, and planted the seeds of heaven on their ruins. And I think that's exciting. (laughs) I think that's amazing. And while Jesus was the ultimate victor in this story, he didn't want to do it by himself. He invited us to do it with him. Remember a few weeks back when Caleb preached about feeding the 5,000? He told us that God delights to express the power of the gospel through divine partnership. He reminded us that Jesus told the disciples to feed the people. And then the di- disciples expressed that they didn't have enough. They, they had lack. We, don't, we can't do it, Jesus. So Jesus said, well, it will be enough if you bring it to me. And so they did bring it to him. And when he had it, it was abundantly enough. Jesus wanted to work with the disciples to bring about abundance to his people. St. Augustine knew this, and he put it this way, without God, man cannot. Without man, God will not. When Jesus affirms Peter's confession, he's saying the same thing. He tells him that you, Peter, and anyone who likewise knows what you know and follows me and my way are now anointed to bring the life of the living God to all creation, even and especially the broken parts, even the gates of Hades. Give me what you have, Peter, even this confession, and I will work with you to turn it into abundance, the likes of which we have not seen since Eden." Now, this all sounds really great, right? I mean, I think it sounds exciting, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Jesus may have started the work, and he has anointed with us to share in that work, but it's far from finished. In our world, we've seen many forms of death all around and even inside of us. Death that, ra- that ranges from our hearts to the world and everything in between. Loneliness is endemic. Depression is everywhere. Guns kill more people than cars in America right now. Wars are raging in Ukraine and Sudan and too many other places. And even our own planet is suffering one natural disaster after another as we experience the hottest year on record. We're experiencing relational death between people that we used to call close friends or loved ones. We're experiencing societal death when we fail to care for our neighbors. And we experience physical death every time we attend a funeral. In many ways, it seems like far from breaking down the gates of death, death is encircling us sometimes. So what do we do when it feels like death is all around us? Well, Tanya told us a couple of weeks ago what Peter did when he was walking out on water. He panicked. He forgot what Jesus told him. He looked at the waves crashing around him, and I assume that he thought he was about to drown. His fear of death pulled him away from Jesus. You know, there's some very old Christian traditions that point to the idea that it's death, not sin, that is humanity's greatest enemy. The Eastern Orthodox traditions, in particular, teach that it's not that we inherited the morality of Adam and Eve, it's that we we inherited the mortality of Adam and Eve, and it's from this that we do all kinds of things to try to escape. We hoard resources to try and hold on just a little bit longer. We wall others off because we think the risk of being hurt outweighs the goodness that comes from right relationship. We seek out pleasure for ourselves, excessive pleasure, to try and distract us from facing our own mortality. In so many ways, we are slaves to the fear of death. And it's so often that our attempts to escape death lead us towards sin. In fact, we all just admitted this at the beginning of the service today, as we do every week. Just a few minutes ago, we all stood up and we confessed, merciful God, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have failed to be an obedient church. And that's so true. We, we all just talked about how in our own lives, we've all caught sight of the gates of Hades. We've seen what scares us and we've chosen to run the other way rather than faithfully live into the powerful anointing that we were promised. But do you all remember what we said at the end of our confession? We all stood up and we said, free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, the anointed one, our Lord. Free us from the slavery of the fear of death so that we are free to plant those seeds of the kingdom on the ruins of the gates of Hades. If we confess that Jesus is the anointed one, heaven on earth, and we are Christians, literally little anointed ones, who share in this work to overcome death in all its forms and bring about new creation, then death no longer has its sting we are no longer beholden to the maddening attempt to run away from it, but instead joined together as a church with Jesus to defeat it. This is a hope that we can live into, fully expecting that in our faithful obedience as a church, Jesus will continue his anointing mission here among us, even if it's not finished yet. The last part of this passage has Jesus instructing Peter that he and the rest of us who are anointed in Christ now have the power to bring about heaven on earth. Jesus tells him, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. A while back, several of us got to go to Wilmore to hear uh, N.T. Wright speak. Um, He was in Asbury for several talks. And a few times, uh, and I think Christine's even mentioned this, he described the church as God's pilot project for new creation, a little place where heaven and earth can be rejoined and where we can see the seeds of Eden and heaven in our midst. Little spaces where we can catch a glimpse of what this freedom, this anointing can look like. I think in practical terms, that's what loosing heaven on earth and binding earth to heaven really means. Some examples of this, I've heard churches buying past due medical debt and then forgiving it so that life-giving care doesn't come with ruinous financial burdens. There are many churches that welcome immigrants in their neighborhoods and help them settle, finding transportation securing jobs and enrolling in school. The church in many parts of the world in history have helped people fleeing from slavery and violence. And let's not forget, even so the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington is tomorrow. And it was a pastor who led that, and the people he brought were church members who were marching for freedom in the face of segregation and oppression. I think we catch a glimpse of this death-defeating anointing every time we come together here at Embrace. We see these little heavens when we bring Jesus' new creation power into our communities, into our homes, and into our relationships. If you ask me, this passage in Matthew is the bottom line of the gospel message. And just to repeat it, because I think it's really important, Jesus, the anointed one, is heaven on earth. He has come to bring about new creation and defeat death in all its forms. And he has empowered us to partner with him in that work. We here together in this room today, we little anointed ones who are here in in person, those who are meeting across the world right now and throughout history, are the assembly that is built on Matthew's big reveal. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. So in hope and power, let's get to work. Let's partner with Jesus, who is the anointed one, to live into the promise of heaven on earth and defeat death in all of its forms. Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one, free us for joyful obedience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.